Last time on Between Us. I told him, you know, I live well. I got a nice car, but too many of my brethren are in prison. Have you heard of something called mass incarceration? It went like that. The white folks around me got kind of got hushed. Some people stood up and supported my point of view, but I felt like people were like giving me a wide berth. I'm John Totten, and this is Between Us. I ain't seen you in years, man. I thought you was my friend. Well, I'm sorry. I've been busy. And me too. So what, the warden picked you to come in and tell me my sentence got yanked up another five years or something? I'll relax. You're still getting out tomorrow. But when you do, you and me's got another little job to do. Man, you and me don't have shit to do. When I get out of here, just give me my fucking money and walk away from me, all right? Because I played that cop shit once and it don't work. Have my money when I get out, please. Oh, wait a minute, Reggie. You don't get it. You see, if you don't help me out on this one, I'm not ever going to give you your money back. You fuck with me, all right? No. Hey, Jack. I gave you that money in good faith. You told me I could fucking trust you. Now, you going to tell me after all this shit I can't have my money? Yeah, now you got the picture, Convict. <laughs> you know, I really struggle with my own voice on these episodes, focusing on so much suffering from marginalized communities. It's like, who cares what another white guy has to offer? I also know as a producer that we need interludes and music and space that talking to you breaks things up a bit. So I try to keep it to the things I'm reading from our guests and others just as a way of breaking things up and also leaving my opinion out of it. But here's a meta-narrative on this episode from my own mind as an example of how white people, even well-intended ones, are bad at being mindful of race dynamics in America. I mentioned in our last episode that I had asked a friend, Carl Cadwell, to read the voice of Ta-Nehisi Coates, whose piece, The Case for Reparations, was source material for our guests last time and today. I thought of Carl because, yes, he's a man of color, but also because I know him to be an exceptional sound engineer, and I thought he could help me out in a pinch. Which he could. But I emailed him asking to read the voiceover, and at the end of the email I wrote, Unfortunately, this is a labor of love for us, so I can't pay you, but I can make sure to credit you. Thanks. And I hit send. Four minutes later, the thought popped into my brain. Oh, shit. I just asked Carl to work for me for free on an episode about African-American reparations. God damn it. I emailed Carl back quickly. Hey, Carl, I'm an idiot. I realize what I just did, and you should name your price. Now, Carl and I have known each other since elementary school, and and he knows where my heart is. We laughed it off, but the fact that I was able to mindlessly ask him for free labor on an episode about how white America owes black America money before it can be made whole was too stark not to mention here. White people, we still have work to do. This shit is unconscious for many of us. And many white people think the work of civil rights is over. And many of the most woke white people think it's over for them. 
And yet, as our guest today, Dr. Brian Nichols and Dr. Medria Connolly point out, there are too many black folks in jail. There are too many who are undereducated and underserved. The ghosts from the slavery and Jim Crow eras haunt us, consciously and unconsciously. Today we continue our discussion from our last episode with Brian Nichols and Medria Connolly, who believe that reparations are the healing our country needs in regards to the unfinished business of America's original sin of systemic racism. I went back and read the uh, case for reparations uh, by Mr. Coates, and my, my Jewish mom comes from Chicago. So there's a part where he's talking about Clyde, and he's talking about him moving into this neighborhood of, of Jews in Chicago, uh, where they do the contract to homeownership. I notice in myself, I'm starting to think, we're part of the good guys here. I go on to read that this fella in Chicago was taken advantage of, and there was a whole system. And, and I start to feel the shame creep in, right? Of like, man, even my Yankee relatives, I can't escape the culpability. And you talk about this in your writing. You already mentioned Lynn Jacobs talking about white people learning to love and engage with their shame. I guess my question is, how? It goes back to like that issue of like, what do we do with double down people? Well, we probably don't engage with people who don't recognize they have something they need to work on. But we're not talking right now about them. We're talking about you, right? Well, sure. Right. We're talking about you and what you do with it. Yeah. And, and I do think it requires a widened scope to still remain even empathic with what you thought were shameful actions mm -hmm. of your relatives, mm -hmm. why they might have done what they did, mm -hmm. the incredibly large cultural forces. I said this before, when Jews came to America, they had to be white. What I believe all along, if you immigrate to America and you see what's going on with, with black folks, you're like, I better get white as fast as possible lest I be thought of as black. Because mm -hmm. I see what they're doing to black folk. Mm -hmm. So I, I understand why you're trying to be white. I get that. And then, then all that goes with that. If you don't accept that privilege, then you're a suspect. Right. And America does not tolerate suspects very well. I can see a sympathy for that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's wrong. Mm -hmm. Right? It's wrong. But now you hold that and it's like, okay, I have this new awareness. I have an expanded recognition. And I just need to use that understanding to support a different way of being. Yeah. The phrase white privilege, it stirs so much up for so many white people. And I think I grew up watching my dad pray at the dinner table for those who are less fortunate than us. That wasn't controversial. And yet it's somehow controversial to say that there's such a thing as white privilege. Praying for the less fortunate, that's the Christian way. But white privilege challenges the idea that you live in a meritocracy. White, white folks are like, I worked hard for everything I got. Nobody gave me anything. Mm -hmm. You probably did work hard for much of what you got. But what you didn't do, you didn't have to worry about where the police going to stop you randomly and arrest you for some nonsense. You didn't have to worry about where, where your opportunity to buy a property, was that going to be restricted in some mm -hmm. kind of way? There might have been a kind of restricted meritocracy where the people who worked harder got more. But there was a group against whom you didn't have to fully compete because it was a huge barrier against them. The insidious part of it is that you're shielded from the privilege you have. It becomes invisible to you. Like explaining water to a fish. Right, right. So I'm telling you, you got privilege. You're like, 
How dare you insult all the hard work I've done in my life to do what I've done? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. And the other thing that we are aware of too, John, in terms of how you carry it and mm-hmm. what you do with it. The conference that Brian and I attended, Anima Leadership hosted, we did a whole piece about imperfect allies because we are constantly building allyships and alliances. And we don't expect people to be perfect allies in this mm-hmm. or to not cross lines or not say some racist thing unintentionally or any of that because it is the air we breathe and it's really about one's capacity to kind of see it feel it perhaps feel shame or embarrassment about it stay present and keep it moving you know the hard part is that people tend to disappear back into a homogeneous collective so that they don't have to experience actually what uh, Robin D'Angelo refers to as racial stress. I mean, our entire lives, you know, we have to manage racial stress every day, everywhere. Mm -hmm. So we know how to do that. But if you are in a homogeneous community, all your friends are white, the neighborhoods you live in are white, the schools you go to are white, the jobs you uh, work in are white, then you're insulated. You're protected from any of that kind of stress. And you're going to transgress boundaries unwittingly. That is expected. So the challenge is really to say, mm-hmm, uh, you're right. Sorry about that. Got it. Take it in. And keep it moving as opposed to disappearing and saying, you know, or going quiet, shutting down, and then withdrawing back into those communities. Because if you're going to withdraw back, then clearly you're complicit in this kind of racist hierarchy and unjust and unequal system that we're all players in. Mm-hmm. Lynn Jacobs also, she talks about, in her view, the focus in the white mind is, is a preservation of goodness and innocent. If you're good and innocent, you can't tolerate that there's something you could have done or contributed to or benefited from that was horrendous. And it's about accepting a a broader, integrated, more human notion of who you are. But but as we're talking, I'm I'm, I'm thinking also about how America is founded on this split reality. We're founded on a split. And I've been thinking a lot about John Locke, Hmm. the, the writer of the Treaties on Democracy that Jefferson so loved and all the founding fathers so loved. And he's writing about pursuit of happiness and all men are created equal. And these are beautiful words that we as Americans hold dear and say, this is what we're about. But those people who wrote those words weren't confused. It's, oh, we're just talking about white folk. <laughs> white men who owned land. Right, right. I mean, John Locke was a big investor in a slave trading company as he's writing those words. And he wrote something called the Charter for the Carolinas, in which he said the white man has dominion over his black slave. He's not confused. You know, the words are so pretty. We hold up those words, but there was an underlying truth that was always present. And we've been struggling with this split ever since. The contradiction. Ta-Nehisi Coates again from The Case for Reparations. 
The wealth accorded America by slavery was not just in what the slaves pulled from the land, but in the slaves themselves. In 1860, slaves as an asset were worth more than all of America's manufacturing, all of the railroads, all of the productive capacity of the United States put together, the Yale historian David W. Blight has noted. Slaves were the single largest, by far, financial asset of property in the entire American economy. The sale of the slaves, in whose bodies that money congealed, writes Walter Johnson, a Harvard historian, generated even more ancillary wealth. Loans were taken out for purchase, to be repaid with interest. Insurance policies were drafted against the untimely death of a slave and the loss of potential profits. Slave sales were taxed and notarized. The venting of the black body and the sundering of the black family became an economy unto themselves, estimated to have brought in tens of millions of dollars to antebellum America. In 1860, there were more millionaires per capita in the Mississippi Valley than anywhere else in the country. You know, that, that brings up something I've experienced a lot in my sessions with well-intended white liberals, some of the debilitation they experience over what they see in the news over the last year. Take the anti-democratic things that we've been seeing in the news over the last few months, and they think this is the end of democracy. And part of what I feel is, well, so have we ever truly been a democracy? Yeah. But we all have these fantasies about what this country is. Yeah. I had this dialogue with our political theorist friend in Scotland about democracy. And I was saying, democracy is like that beautiful club where people are inside that club and all voices are respected and people may disagree, but they, they agree to disagree, they, they, they debate and it's wonderful. But meanwhile, you got some black folks outside the club knocking at the door, battling with the bouncer. Let me in, I want some of that democracy, can I get some of that? They might let a couple of us in, but mostly we're out there fighting with the bouncer. No, you can't get in, you're not allowed to have democracy. <laughs> and and so I've been experiencing this in my sessions from, from the perspective of the white liberal who sees the murder of George Floyd. We've seen these murders on our iPhones for years now, but something about the George Floyd murder caused a, a different reaction, a bigger reaction. What do you think it is about this particular murder? It was undeniable. It was just undeniable. Mm -hmm. It was unequivocal. You couldn't say, well, this or he, uh, well. Again, back to Medri um, talking about Hannah Arendt, the banality of it, the, just the ordinariness. Ho-hum, I got my pen in my pocket. I'm just going to stick my knee on this black man's neck and I'll kill him and... I guess then I'll go get me a cup of coffee and go home. Whatever. It just looks so routine. Right. And they're just like nothing. I never actually watched the video because I couldn't, because it's traumatic for me. And it gives me nightmares. And so I never actually witnessed it because I, I couldn't tolerate it. But I do think also, ironically, that is something about the pandemic that first of all, the pandemic has put us all in a space, a, a collective vulnerability that we have, certainly our generation has have never experienced. Black people experience the vulnerability all the time, but the entire nation experiencing the vulnerability that's new. I think also that, you know, everyone was home. There was no getting away from it. There just 
wasn't. I think that there was, from this place of vulnerability, a collective sense of complicity that was also operating, that activated so many white followers and supporters of Black Lives Matter. This was not news to Black people. It was not new to Black people. But it was clearly uh, news to the white collective around what has been going on always. Yeah. To Black people in the Black community. Always. Yeah. I received text messages from white relatives for the first time saying, what do we do about this? It got me thinking that people who don't usually take notice are taking notice. But you got to catch them. You know, you got to catch them. It's like a portal. A portal has opened. There's opportunity. There's forces mm -hmm. that, that are, are engaged that try to close that portal. And I think we've seen that. People are going to feel thoughtful, responsible, remorseful only but so long. Some people may permanently shift but a number of people are going to shift back away from it because it's mm -hmm. too hard to hold. Mm -hmm. And I think that portal is closed a little bit for us right now. What do you call some of those forces? I mean, I can just use a psychological term. I would just say resistance. I don't want to be made to feel like there's something bad about me or wrong about me. And then not only that, if you start to acknowledge that I did something wrong and that I did something I owe for that, are you now going to destroy me? From Brian and Medria's paper, on the psychological case for reparations. Rather than confront the immorality of slavery and work towards repair, white Americans have defended against the realization using denial and avoidance as defense mechanisms. Hence, the discomfort that everyone seems to feel when the idea of reparations is introduced. At the most superficial level, White Americans who have this reaction worry that they will have to pay for something in the here and now that their ancestors perpetrated in the there and then. The ways in which white Americans have benefited from the institutionalization of white privilege and white control, derivatives of hundreds of years of forced labor by African Americans, is discounted and obfuscated by our rugged individual and meritocratic mythologies. Because also in these notions that we talk about equality, I think in the kind of Western philosophical world, it's built on hierarchy. And I don't think our inner mental psychological structures have much room for true equality. So if you start talking about equality for African-Americans, equality for people of color, I think in many of the white minds, equality sounds like, oh, y'all about to take over. Y'all going to be on top and I'm going to be on bottom. Mm -hmm. Somebody's on top and somebody's mm -hmm. on bottom. If I'm not on top, I'm going to be on bottom. That gets back to the done or done to Absolutely. dichotomy. Yes. That, absolutely. Yeah. It's a part of that. And, and so it's hard to hold this idea. Mm -hmm. you know. And also that people worry. The notion of equality sounds wonderful. I'm on board. As long as I don't have to give anything up in the service of it. And the fear is that I'm going to have to give up something. The idea that, how about this? You might actually gain something from this. Can you wrap your mind around the fact that it might enhance your experience, not detract from it? 
But the whole notion of self-sacrifice is terrifying when you are operating from a place of ease and privilege. Who Mm -hmm. wants to give that up? Mm -hmm. And it's ironic because we're not really asking anyone to. But we are saying that the playing field needs to get flattened and the parameters need to be expanded. And it is true. Mm -hmm. If we are, in fact, competing on an even playing field, some of which you have gotten automatically because half of the competition has been excluded, you might not get as automatically. And suddenly you might have to confront the reality that you're not as special as you thought you were. Mm -hmm. You're just kind of human and like the rest of us, Mm -hmm. all all of the mythology around, you know, the rugged individual and I'm I'm so much better than everyone kind of has to be given up in the service of embracing the aspects of ourselves that are quite wonderful. And the other aspects of ourselves, not, not so much that need to be contained in some way and held in abeyance. When I was in Kyoto, I went to one of the Zen gardens, which have a particular formation. My guide was explaining the meaning of why rocks were placed in certain places. And one thing she explained to me, she said the Zen garden always has one long boulder and then three other rocks in front. And she said, and, and we think of that as the mother tiger. And the mother tiger always has three cubs, and one of them is vicious. And so she always needs to keep the vicious one close to her to keep an eye on it, lest it act out. And I said to her, oh, well, that's just like us as human beings, that each of us has a part of ourselves that can be quite vicious. And if we are not aware of that capacity and kind of keep an eye on it, we can find ourselves enacting those aspects of ourself without thought of how it may land or what the consequences of that is. I think that that is also true for our culture and that what I believe reparations allows for is it elevates that aspect of the culture that has been and continues to be quite vicious to black people and other people of color. But if you have to witness and be a part of a reparative process, that no longer goes into an unconscious space. You're then able to keep an eye on it because it's right there in your face. And it is that process then that allows us to manage it more effectively than we would by denying its existence. It seems very therapeutic, this idea that by relinquishing control, we actually are made more whole. It's also for our supposed Christian nation, a very Christian idea that... Through self-sacrifice, we become elevated. It seems lost. I try to empathize with the idea of losing, that equality means losing. And another kind of off, far-field example, I thought about when my wife was pregnant uh, with our daughter, and then when our daughter was born, 
and I knew I knew a lot of men who had a lot of hesitance about having babies come on the scene. I had a couple of men say outright, you know, you're going to lose out, you know, you're going to lose, you know, when that baby comes. And lo and behold, when the, when baby came, I definitely fell down the priority list. There's no, no doubt about that. <laughs> you know, I was not number one for sure. <laughs> if the only scale I'm looking at is me and my wife, I lose. Yeah, I, I did lose. But maybe there's a broader scale. Because when I look at the fact that I now had this family and I had this daughter, that was a net gain. I lost a little bit there, but I gained so much more having this mm -hmm. daughter and having this family. And I think sometimes when people are talking about, well, I'm going to lose out, like Metri was referring to, you're only looking at one, one scale. You're missing so much more that we may gain and that you may gain. It's a rigid interpretation. Rigidity is a sign of psychopathology, right? We need to loosen that psychopathology. My, uh, I have a wife and a two-year-old who are hiding in the back right now, uh, trying to stay quiet watching Sesame Street. And another one on the way, daughter number two, is coming in April. Oh, you're really down to progress. <laughs> <laughs> As you said that. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I'm grateful. I, I, I'm grateful that I get time to work on my podcast and stuff like that. You're bringing up all kinds of, uh, as a white guy and as a dad, it's insecurity, right? What status, what position am I losing? Am I going to be important like I was before? You know, especially when we want to bring gender into it. Whiteness and masculinity, these are not mindsets that encourage a robust discussion about insecurity. Uh, no. No, that's not, that's not the, the, the notions of masculinity that we subscribe to. Before the writings about reparations, what brought both of you into the field of psychotherapy? I grew up in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. We were speaking the other night. as We have a Friday night kind of cocktail hour, Brian and a couple of other friends. And we were all talking about our high school experiences. And as we were talking, it became clear to me that I was the only one who actually attended integrated schools. Even though we were self-segregating in these integrated schools, nevertheless, the numbers were such that we were in these integrated schools. As a, you know, adolescent, I had the same kind of adolescent angst that many adolescents have. And I had always, in reflecting on that time, I'd always thought that I would want to be available for someone to talk to in ways that no one was available for me. And how much easier my adolescent life as a black female would have been if I had someone that I could just talk to about all of what I was experiencing. So there was that reality. Mm -hmm. So I went to college, had a child at a very young age, married, divorced, I thought and married, divorce, and married, divorce. Yes, I have, I have a few marriages. <laughs> a few. <laughs> Absolutely. The black, the black Elizabeth Taylor, Absolutely. my Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So in the process of doing that in what was then my second marriage, I was being encouraged actually to apply to medical school. And I was thinking about becoming a psychiatrist. But my husband at the time was experiencing a fair amount of insecurity. As a result of that, was acting out 
in ways that were decidedly unsupportive of my doing the level of coursework that I would need to do to apply to medical school. What I decided as a result of those difficulties was that one, I would divorce him, and two, that I would pursue an academic course where I did not need anyone's help to complete the work. And so I applied to social work school and proceeded to get a social work degree, which I have. When I was finishing that social work degree, one of my professors, Ray Valle, I'll never forget, said to me, hmm. you know, this work was not very challenging. I really think you should get a PhD. And it was the first time a professor had ever said that to me. In fact, you know, the white professors I'd had in undergraduate were discouraging me from even going into psychology as a major because they said, well, you know, I don't know if you should do that because you have to get a PhD. And with the implication being that I was not capable of doing that. This professor, on the other hand, said, Ray Valle, Cuban, man of color, said this was way too easy to think about it. So I thought, huh, oh, okay. And then I proceeded to apply to doctoral programs in sociology, I think maybe two or three, which I was not accepted into. And it was so interesting because I said, well, well why? And one of the people I spoke to said, we did not accept you because you are a people person. And we really think you should be applying to psychology programs, not sociology programs for a PhD. And I thought about it and I thought, oh, I think you're absolutely right. And then I proceeded to apply to clinical psychology programs and got accepted into those programs and moved to New York then as a single parent with a 12-year-old working part-time and going to school full-time and getting a PhD and making jokes about the fact that when I moved to New York, this was in 1978, I finished my degree in 85, moved from Del Mar, California, Southern California to New York City. I could not find housing. I ran into every discriminatory category that existed in 1978. They did not want Black people. They did not want students. They did not want children. You know, I was making jokes. I was like, what the hell? How is it that I'm managing to fit into every discriminatory category that exists? I eventually then had to bribe a superintendent in order to get an apartment to live there in 1978, New York City. Thank you very much. It's probably around the time our now former president was denying housing to Black people yes. in New York. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so I came into the doctoral program with a social work degree, which already broadened my lens around how we're going to do clinical work. I'm like, well, wait, how are you going to eat? Do they have a place to live? Do they have enough food? What are the circumstances that training really already brought in my lens in, in my department was enormously supportive of me and invested in me completing that program. When I completed that, you know, I worked jobs and slowly developed a private practice over the 30 years, which I do now exclusively, but it didn't start out that way. Hmm. 
going back to this idea of whether race and culture belong in the treatment, it's woven into every aspect of your origin into the field. What hubris it would be for someone to say it doesn't belong in, in the treatment room. Can't imagine it. It traverses every aspect. Absolutely. Again, from Brian and Medria's paper on the psychological case for reparations. America's history of slavery, its resistance to acknowledging the harm done, and its unwillingness to compensate African Americans for the country's moral failings, make us ripe for haunting. Our ghosts are spirits of both former slaves and former slave owners. Because as we pointed out in previous sections of this paper, no soul can rest in peace in the aftermath of a crime against humanity that has not been emotionally resolved by that community. We believe that until America can properly honor through acts of atonement the millions of African Americans who toiled and died to build America's economic foundation, the ghostly presence of both slave and master will continue to haunt every aspect of American culture. This haunting will yield negative forces that subvert the basic and oft-repeated tenets of our country. Land of the free, home of the brave, Haunting is not the same as being exploited or traumatized. It is distinctive in that it is a manifestation of an unresolved loss sustained by social violence done in the past that is making itself known in the present. Haunting is also differentiated from trauma because it produces a something to be done. Dr. Nichols. Every student I supervise, I ask them to be able to answer this question, why, why did you become a psychologist? First, I should say I was adopted. That's kind of a part of the foundation as, a, mm -hmm. as an infant. But I grew up in an elementary school living in an all-black suburb outside of D.C. My dad mm -hmm. was a chemist, so we lived a, a nice middle-class life. And then when his college friend and fraternity mate changed from being the president of Shaw University in Raleigh to being the president of Howard University in Washington, he invited my dad to be his associate. He started his career as a university administrator at, at Howard University. Hmm. As we went, he went to the HBCU, we moved into the pretty much all white Bethesda, Maryland. I like to say we were like the Jeffersons. We were moving on up. So, but that took me from an all black community to a high school that was 1% black, 15 out of 1500. Hmm. So that was quite a experience. And I will say, just at the outset, I did not experience a lot of overt racism there. I did not. Yeah, I made many friends. It was mostly welcoming. You know, when we made that move when I was 12, and by the time, you know, you're developing as a teenager, you're hitting 14, 15, 16, you're starting to think more about things. And I began to see the invisible barriers that I was bumping into. I thought it was interesting. You know, we started high school in 10th grade, not 9th. When you were in ninth grade, they laid out all the classes you could take in high school, and you kind of were picking your classes. And I saw that in 11th grade, it was like it jumped off the page. It was, I could take psychology. Like, I'm going to take that. I'm definitely going to take that class. And I took that class in 11th grade, and I took 
two semesters of psychology, two semesters of sociology, a semester in human development. I had a whole social science curriculum in high school. It was fantastic. But I'm in that class, we're reading Freud, The Interpretation of Dreams, Psychopathology of Everyday Living. And I'm like, mm-hmm. holy shit, there's a whole world going on beneath the surface. There's this whole unconscious thing happening. And all this stuff that's going on, I hear this talk around school and it, it's a lot of chatter, it's a lot of bullshit. But now I see what's really going on with you. I see why you do what you do. It was a sense of power that I had. I see that there's unconsciousness happening. I can interpret these people. I'm not just subject to all that comes at me. I can sort of see beneath it. That was my adolescent embrace mm. of psychology. I went on to Howard as an undergrad. It wasn't such a jagged move as it was for Medria. I, you know, I'm at you know Black University. My dad now has a doctorate in education. If I want to get a doctorate, goddamn it, I'm gonna get a doctorate. Ain't nobody gonna tell me I can't get a doctorate. You come to Howard University. Shit. <laughs> My friends, we used to say that Harvard was the was the White Howard. That's, that's how we rolled at Howard. It was a great experience, and then. You know, then I went on to UCLA. Um, and I would say my experience in the white high school, in the white area, allowed me to make a more fluid transition to UCLA. I mean, I wouldn't, it didn't scare me or intimidate me, not fully, anyway. The intense rigor of the academics and the kind of intellectual um, a- attitudes there were a bit intimidating. So this has been a continual path since teenage for you. You've, you've had a a passion. I tell people I felt very fortunate that I understood what I wanted to do when I was in the 11th grade. Yeah. You know, at that same time, they were talking about educational disparities amongst African Americans, mm-hmm. reading problems, and, you know, the, all the debate about intellectual inferiority mm-hmm. of African Americans. Mm-hmm. And I knew a bunch of black people. I said, we, these are smart people. I don't, I don't get this in, intellectual inferiority. I'm not with that. But there's circumstances that are impinging on us, and some of us underperform under the stress. Mm-hmm of all that's going on, like my, my idea was I could use psychology to help us counter this stuff that's causing us to underperform. Mm-hmm. It was a naive idea because it was still embedded in an individualistic approach. Yeah. And, but I spent my whole career working on trying to build empowerment. That was the title of that first paper, 2016, Building Empowerment to Overcome Systemic Inequities, mm. what I learned as a psychologist in the hood. Mm. But I came to understand working at the individual level wasn't just going to get it. It was too big, too enormous. You had to have a collective response to a collective force. And I think that was a shift that happened to me in an instant back in 2016. Ta-Nehisi Coates again from The Case for Reparations. Having been enslaved for 250 years, black people were not left to their own devices. They were terrorized. In the Deep South, a second slavery ruled. In the North, legislatures, mayors, civic associations, banks, and citizens all colluded to pin black people into ghettos where they were overcrowded, overcharged, and undereducated. Businesses discriminated against them awarding them the worst jobs and the worst wages. Police brutalized them in the streets. And the notion that black lives, black bodies, and black wealth were rightful targets remained deeply rooted in the broader society. 
Now we have half stepped away from the long centuries of despoilment promising never again, but still we are haunted. Are there things that you feel particularly hopeful about as we move forward in regards to our society's original sin of racism? Ironically, I am very hopeful, even though I hold simultaneously a sense of terror that I have never experienced before in the world. And so it's a very curious thing to be both hopeful and terrified simultaneously, that the hopefulness comes in certainly what I believe and many Black people believe, that in many ways, as awful as Trump was, he absolutely exposed in undeniable ways the society that has been operating all the time just below the white collective consciousness that was continuously disavowed and negated and minimized. And what he did was he just opened it and said, here it is, no excuses, no, we're not gonna pretend it's anything other than this. And so in that way, it was very helpful. And the insurgency, I mean, to actually hear the news commentators saying, everyone knows that there would have been major blood spilled if those protesters had been people of color. Unarmed Black men running away get shot in the back. What would an offense have been like? And it's so obvious that it's undeniable. And so that's the hopefulness is in the undeniability of everything that we have been pointing to for, you know, the last 150 years. That's where the hope is. And people are feeling mobilized to do something about that, both in policy on a kind of national level and in, you know, our everyday lives. Now, the other part of that is the terror. I'm old enough to be eligible for vaccine. And so I got on a list, you know, where I've gotten my first shot already. But it was also very clear to me. And I was saying to all of my friends, you know, I'm going over into the Black community to get my vaccine. I'm not going into any white community to get my vaccination because I no longer feel safe as a Black woman going into a predominantly white community to do much of anything. I don't want to have some Yahoo yelling at me. I just read in the LA Times today that the vaccine center was closed for like an hour yesterday at Dodger Stadium because a bunch of white folks showed up and disrupted the process, telling people that COVID was a hoax and don't get the vaccine and all that. They had to shut the operation down to kind of move these people out of the way. So all of this is so in our faces that while it's terrifying, it's also hopeful because you just can't look at this and do nothing. It is absolutely mobilizing many of us 
to, you know, say, see, this is what happens when you are in denial and you're delusional. This is what ends up happening. This is the consequence of that for years, this kind of massive split that we are managing or trying to manage. For me, uh, I saw the insurrection as the fulfillment of the promise of the Trump presidency. When Trump became president, not that like I predicted it, I didn't, but I thought, oh, okay, this is an opportunity. And I reflected on my training years ago in crisis therapy, and we used to always say that the Chinese character in crisis means both danger and opportunity. I thought Trump was going to usher in a crisis that once and for all could like bring all of these pathogenic forces that reside just under the surface onto the surface. And now it would give us a chance to contend with them, you know, head on. And the way I say it is, if you don't get blowed up, maybe things are going to change for the better. You have to walk close to annihilation. That was talk. It was big talk on my part in 2016. But now here's the reality. And the reality is scary, you know, and I feel that. Feel that terror that the manager is talking about, the precariousness of things. And, and I don't know which way it's going to go. I think that's the other part. We don't know. Mm. But I do believe there's a greater chance at fundamental change now than there's ever been probably since the 60s. The way I look at reparations is it's the unfinished business of the civil rights movement. There's a professor at Howard. Araujo. Anna Araujo. And she talks about how historically the push for reparations tends to alternate with the push for civil rights. And they don't tend to come together. Sort of a yin and yang there. Mm. It's like if we're pushing for civil rights, we don't want to distract people by saying, you got to give up some, some cash. But the way I see it is that if we don't do this thing that creates atonement, the efforts to make civil rights and other kind of reforms, they're just going to dissipate over time. The reparations, I believe it has a more capacity for fundamental shifting in, in relations within the society. I, th I see this as the finishing up of the unfinished business of the civil rights movement. Dr. Connolly and Dr. Nichols, thanks so much for talking with me. It's been a really rich and a heavy topic, but a delightful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We enjoyed it. This has been Between Us. Our thanks to Brian Nichols and Medria Connolly. And a special thanks to our voice actor, Carl Cadwell whose music you can find at www.summerdregs.com. And thanks, Carl, for laughing off my bullshit. Between Us is produced by myself, John Totten, and Mason Neely, who also composed our music. Our research assistant is Rose Bergdahl. Be sure to find us where you find podcasts and subscribe or leave a review. Find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and now YouTube. Mason and I have conversations on YouTube from time to time. Find our channel and subscribe. And until next time, take care.